Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 54, Burn It Up. In this episode, I once again interview Dr. Edward Fudge, this time on his book, The Fire That Consumes, and the orthodox alternative it presents to the traditional view of hell. But there are a few things I want to say first, very quickly, since the interview is a long one, although, as you probably know, I'm not as... I can never be as quick as I want to be. Anyway, first, the The Apologetics podcast recently had its one-year birthday. Last Friday, July 29th, in fact. It was July 29th of 2010 that I published the very first episode of the podcast. And in the year that followed, I've managed to squeeze in 53 episodes, an average of just over one per week, which I think is pretty cool. Now, granted, many of those are really two halves of the same episode. But, you know, hey, I took the effort to edit them and come up with names and title songs and all that kind of stuff. And often, the episode break came at a point uh, between two topics or ideas or focuses in the, you know, in the course of that interview. So I have no qualms about calling it 53 legitimate episodes. The podcast has come a long way in this past year. Those 53 episodes have been downloaded a total of over 21,000 times, which really amazes me. We've had on a number of great guests to to, uh, uh, to discuss a variety of interesting topics. I've grown immensely just by hosting the show, preparing teachings myself, preparing interview questions, all of that kind of stuff. But the most important thing about celebrating the The Apologetics podcast's one-year birthday is that I have you all to thank for it. I'd like to think that if I had if I had had only a few hits per episode, only a tiny handful of listeners, that I'd still continue with the show. But to be honest with you, I'm not certain that I would. Um, I know I've probably said that I would in the past, but to be honest, I don't know if that if that would in fact hold true. The fact that I've got so many of you not just listening, but contacting me, encouraging me, complimenting me, even challenging me, that motivates me greatly. So on this slightly belated birthday celebration, I just want to extend a very heartfelt thanks to every single one of you who listens. Thank you so, so very much. The second thing I wanted to mention, I I, I pointed out in a recent episode that after about a year of podcasting, I had finally gotten my second iTunes comment. Well, as it turns out, not long after that second comment, I got a third one. Uh, This one is from Nicholas Potts, who has also commented a few times on the The Apologetics Facebook page. Nicholas writes, This podcast is one of my favorites. I listen to James White, Carm, R.C. Sproul, and yes, they are some tough hitters, and they are great and wonderful teachers, but I would say Chris Date is rising to the ranks, and if he continues this ministry, he will most certainly join their ranks. Chris knows how to take tough concepts such as reform theology, preterism, and the like, and to bring it to terms that are for the layman in a nice and relaxed way so that the listener feels comfortable and optimal for teaching. He has great teaching abilities and a gentle heart. These two things are not only what the church is missing and needs, but these are two effective characteristics of a godly man filled with the Holy Spirit. I encourage everyone to listen to this podcast. Well, Nick, thank you so very much for your incredibly kind words. I I don't ever see myself reaching the level of some of the teachers you mentioned. Honestly, I don't. But I do very much appreciate that you think that I've got a hint of something that they have and that you've been edified by my show. Uh, And in particular, I'm very thankful that you think I have a gentle heart. 
Uh, I agree with you that this is something that seems lacking amongst many Christian theologians and apologists. And so I'm glad that at least so far I've kind of succeeded in trying to have that kind of uh, attitude of, of gentleness and humility. Uh, and of course, I hope m- most listeners would agree with you. So thank you so much, Nick. It means a lot. One more thing that I want to mention before we move into the um, to the show. I was recently emailed by someone who uh, listened to the previous Edward Fudge interview that I did. Uh, this person is a Unitarian who recently authored a book criticizing the doctrine of the Trinity. I told him that where I stand right now, uh, I'm unwilling to have people on my show for sort of informal interviews uh, to promote views which I think are heretical. But I did say that I'd be willing to moderate a debate on my show between him and a Trinitarian, kind of like I did uh, several episodes ago with Michael Burgos and James Anderson. Uh, And so I asked him if that was something he was interested in. He said yes, it would be. And I reached out to uh, a number of friends and acquaintances and former guests asking if there was somebody who might like to take him on. Now... I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch, and I also don't want to get your hopes up too much only to see them dashed later. But suffice it to say that a very big name, I think he's a very big name, in the sphere of Trinitarian debate has expressed an interest in appearing on my show to debate this person. And though he hasn't made it clear that he's committing to it yet, I think it's likely he's indicated a tentative time frame, he requested an electronic copy of this Unitarian's book, which I forwarded to him. and I'm hoping that he'll begin listening to the electronic book on his uh, bicycle rides soon. <laughs> little hint there. Uh, but again, nothing confirmed. Uh, it's tentative at this point, but I do have one or two other candidates lined up if this person can't do it. So stay tuned for that debate. It, it'll probably be a few months out, but I think it'll be a doozy. So Anyway, that's about all I've got for today in terms of monologue. The next promo in my rotation is a timely one, uh, given that the show's host shares the same view that my guest is promoting today. That's right, I'm talking about Dr. Glenn Peoples, and say hello to my little friend. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. Do listen to Glenn's show. Uh, You're not going to agree with everything that he says. Um, You know, we've had him on a couple of times in the past to discuss physicalism. Uh, Oh, by the way, he's agreed to come on a third time uh, to discuss the dilemma that I tried to ask Joel Green about recently, um, since I and some of my listeners didn't feel like we really got an answer that satisfies us. So uh, he's agreed tentatively to come back on, and I'm looking forward to that. But the the point I'm making is that there are some areas where you're going to disagree with him. This is one of them. There may be others as well, some of which are more serious than others. But where you agree with him, you're going to find his arguments very powerful uh, against abortion, uh, against secularism, against the the, um, Jesus myth um, idea that, that he was a reproduced myth from previous uh, uh, mystery religions. His his arguments are just incredible. Um, And where you disagree with him, I think you'll at least find his arguments challenging. At least I have. So check out his show. Uh, As he pointed out there in the promo, it's www.beretta-online.com. And I've included a link in my show notes so you can check it out. Or you can just search for Say Hello to My Little Friend in the iTunes store. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. Yeah, burn it up. Oh, yeah, burn it up. Oh, yeah, burn it up. 
Today I'm joined a second time by Dr. Edward Fudge, who last time talked with me about the Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ. This time, though, Edward and I will be discussing an orthodox alternative to the traditional view of hell, one he presents in the recent third edition of his book, The Fire That Consumes, A Biblical and Historical Study of the Doctrine of Final Punishment. Edward, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, before we get started, toward the end of our last discussion, you hinted at something that I wanted to ask you about today. A number of years ago, my wife and I were big fans of a little show called Dawson's Creek. And uh, for any of you those of the uh, for any of those of you listening who might be familiar with that show, please don't hold that against me. I was young at the time, so was my wife. <laughs> but anyway, I, I bring it up because there was an actor on that show. His name is John Wesley Shipp, I think, and he played Dawson's father, Mitch Leary. And I bring this up because it turns out that he's an actor in an upcoming movie, which has a certain connection with you and the topic we're discussing today, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it does. It's quite interesting. <laughs> I had the good pleasure of last month of meeting uh, John Wesley Shipp and chatting with him a while because he was in my hometown of Athens, Alabama, where the movie was being filmed, uh, which is due out next year in 12, and it's titled uh, Hell and Mr. Fudge. This is a feature-length movie about uh, about the human story behind the writing of the book, The Fire That Consumes. And I think it's going to be quite interesting. And it's a beautiful movie uh, film-wise. Film and, uh, and John Wesley Shipp was one of the actors. He played my father. Well, I look forward to seeing that. You said it comes out in 2012? That's the plan, yes, sir. And I think I saw on Facebook that they, that they recently finished uh, shooting, and now they're in post-production. Is that right? That's correct. It's being done by an independent film company in Northern California, and they are now doing the editing and all that. Do you think that, it, is it going to be opened pretty widely in theaters, or will it be kind of a narrow release first? Well, uh, there's a small outfit that's doing it. It's a, it's a relatively inexpensive film as movies go. I think the budget's about a million dollars, but, uh, uh, they will be trying to get it on to, uh, to TV channels, maybe Hallmark Channel, maybe Discovery, History Channel, whatever. It'll be for sale through places that sell uh, films of, uh, you know, in individual films. And they're hoping to get in some independent film festivals and perhaps find a distributor as well. Okay. Well, when I find out when the movie's released, I'll make sure I let my listeners know, and I'll be one of the first to watch it. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of material to cover today, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, the third edition of your book was recently released, but from what I understand, it's been something like 30 years since its original uh, release. Can you tell us about how your interest in the subject of hell developed and what led to your writing the book originally? I wish I had a real dramatic story to tell you. <laughs> Truthfully, there's, there's not a real dramatic story. There's an interesting story. I had no particular uh, affection for the subject of hell. I was not drawn to it. I was not especially troubled by it. It was not something I thought about very much. Uh, as a child, I grew up in a Christian home and, and uh, was in church all my life and became a Christian at age 10 and started preaching at age 16. But I never did uh, have a great trouble with the doctrine of hell. Uh, what happened, truthfully, is uh, I had had an article published in Christianity Today on the subject in 1976. Uh, it was not a, I didn't, I didn't consider it a, a, a controversial article particularly. It gave the background to the word Gehenna in the Old Testament, the intertestamental period. Then I just noted that in the New Testament, there are 12 passages of scripture which, which contrast the final destiny of the saved and the lost in the same verse or a verse or two. And I went through those and pointed out such passages as Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. 
in John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I just call attention to these different contrasting terms. However, it proved controversial to some people anyway. Among those people who saw the uh, article and read it was a man in Australia who was a theologian and a, and a theological publisher, he he contacted me and said he was looking for someone in evangelical uh, with biblical training, theological training, to do a, a year-long research project for him personally and tell him everything in the Bible and a whole lot more besides uh, on this topic of final punishment and would I be interested. I, I was interested in doing research. I enjoyed studying and, uh, and he was going to pay me a little bit to do it. So I said, sure. And I took it on as a project. Uh, in the process of my own researching this topic for him, I came upon so many biblical passages uh, that said things I was not anticipating the Bible saying and had not noticed these verses before uh, that, that I began to change my own mind. And in the end, I, I asked the sponsor for permission to write a book, and he said that would be okay. And so I did, and that's how the book first came out. I see. Well, in this book, you presented uh, a sort of alternative to the more traditional Christian view of hell, which I kind of think you've alluded to. Can you summarize for us then, as a way to sort of set the stage, uh, in case anybody listening isn't aware, what is it that the traditional view of hell holds? Sure. The uh, the traditional view of hell and, and traditional view, let's say the traditional view of final judgment, even to begin at that point, mm. uh, and, and I are, are in, in agreement in general as we start, and that is that that at the end of the of the, of the age, uh, Christ will return in person and in power. Uh, there will be a general resurrection of the saved and the lost. Uh, there will be a great judgment day, as it's pictured and described in Scripture, uh, in which uh, to use human language so we can understand it, it's, it's pictured as all people being brought before the bar of justice and have God's final verdict pronounced on their lives. Those who are saved because of the atonement of Jesus uh, will be uh, ushered into the blessedness of eternal life and immortality. Those who are lost uh, will be raised, but not immortal, uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, and, and and they will be sent instead to the lake of fire. At, at that point, the two views diverge uh, somewhat, my view and the traditional view. According to the traditional view, those who go into the lake of fire or hell or Gehenna will simply be going into a place where they, like the saved, will be alive forever. And in the traditional view has it that uh, that even those who are lost are somehow made to, to be deathless and are not, not 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 are not allowed to die, even though one of the most common words in the New Testament for the end of the wicked is die or death. They never die. They're never destroyed. They never perish in the traditional view, but they're alive forever and ever to suffer eternal conscious torment. My my view is uh, is really simplistic in a sense in that I take the scripture more at face value, which say things like the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. Uh, those who believe in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. And uh, that God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And I believe that those words all mean just what they sound like and that we don't need to give them any special meaning. Uh, but those who go to hell do, in fact, finally die, perish, and are destroyed and are gone forever. So this is where the title of your book comes from, The, the Fire That Consumes? Yes, the, the Fire That Consumes expresses this view. The title itself, of course, comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, and Hebrews, chapter 12, both of which have the expression, Our God is a consuming fire. 
And so uh, th- th- this view is oftentimes called annihilation, is that correct? Yes, it is, although that, that word uh, has other variations <clears throat> and, and such. Uh, I, I try to be careful to say uh, when I'm talking or writing that that annihilationism is is not a bad way to describe my view. However, it's a broader term than than my view specifically because annihilationism also would include those like the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that when the wicked die now, that that the that the grave is hell and that they simply are dead forever and never are raised for judgment or anything else, and that when they're gone, they're gone forever. I don't believe that's true. I think it's important that we say that. Uh, that uh, Scripture says there will be a resurrection of, of some for life and some for judgment, and that uh, the, the lost have to face God and, and, and be sentenced, and then they suffer their punishment, which in the end is, is death. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and, and I'm glad that you pointed out that your uh, variation, I suppose, of annihilation does hold that the wicked will die or will rise, because I think that that's a real hallmark of orthodoxy. But I'm curious if, if, if annihilation is a little too broad a term. Um, is there any is there any sort of uh, label that we could attach to your view that would be a little more specific? Yes, in fact, uh, there there are other. F- Varieties of annihilationism, which include what you and I both consider orthodoxy in terms of double judgment, as well. For example, some some believe that that the wicked are, are raised and they encounter God in judgment, and then they are instantly destroyed at that at, 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 you know at, at that time. Others believe that they go into the lake of fire and maybe are there for a while, and then are destroyed. My view probably lends itself to that. Uh, the, 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 the more narrow view has to do with uh, with the explanation of what's happening. Just as Christians have different ideas of how to explain the atonement, uh, the penal substitutionary theory, the satisfaction theory, and so on and so on, they all agree that the atonement happened. They all agree that Jesus is the one who did it. They all agree that it's absolutely necessary for salvation, but they still have different ways of trying to understand what happened and why it ha- how it happened. That's That's also the case here. Uh, annihilationists all believe that in the end the wicked die, perish, and are destroyed and are gone forever. But there are different ways of explaining the, the purpose of it or, or the, the method of it. My, my, my view is, in that regard, is sometimes referred to as uh, conditional immortality or conditionalism. And that's a big word, but it's a simple meaning. And it simply means this, that Scripture tells us in First Timothy and other places that God only has immortality that is inherently of himself. Hmm. Uh, no human being is inherently immortal. The, the only time Scripture ever speaks of human beings as being immortal, it always it's always in a situation with three things that can be observed, and, and it's, there's no exception to this. In the first place, it always is speaking of the saved who are immortal, never the lost. In the second place, it's always talking about the, the resurrection body, the whole person that's immortal, never to, an immaterial spirit or soul disembodied. And in the third place, it's always talking about something that happens at the end of the age of, in the resurrection, not something that happened by creation or in our, in our natural state now. So my view is called conditional immortality for the simple reason that uh, that those who believe in Jesus are given eternal life. Uh, in First Corinthians 15 and in Romans, the first chapters, Paul speaks of immortality and, and glory and honor 
These are given to the saved. The lost are never said to be made immortal. The lost are not raised in glorified bodies. They're not raised in power. They're not raised to eternal life. Uh, immortality or deathlessness is a gift of God to the saved. It's conditional on the atonement of Christ. It's conditional on receiving God's gift. And so uh, this view is called conditional immortality because if one is not given immortality and is raised mortal, then that certainly is a state of, of being able to die. And in fact, that's what happens uh, when they suffer the second death. I understand. Yeah, and we're going to come back to uh, this issue of conditionalism a little bit later. But first, so a lot of tradi- traditionalists, including myself, although I'm not certain that I fall on the side of traditionalism anymore, um, I'm sort of on the fence, but uh, many believe in the idea of varying degrees of punishment in hell, in, in, in the same way they might believe in varying degrees of um, uh, reward in heaven. And they would leverage, I think, several biblical passages in support of that notion. Does, does your view allow for various degrees of punishment in, in this consuming fire? Absolutely, yes, certainly it does. Uh, I don't think the Bible goes into specific detail about that. I, I, in other words, I don't say that uh, that I know how that's going to all work out, but I, I can say this for sure, that, uh, that whereas the Bible does say repeatedly throughout the whole Bible that the end of, uh, end of sinners is death and perishing and, and destruction, the process of being destroyed, the process of dying the second death, the destructive process itself in hell, which culminates in that second death, allows for infinite variety of uh, individual punishments if one wants to think in terms of individual conscious punishment. And, and that's true whether we think of it in terms of the kind of punishment or whether we think of it in terms of the intensity of the punishment or the duration of the punishment. There's plenty of room for individualized justice God in His infinite justice, God in His infinite mercy will do what is exactly right in each individual case and insofar as that may require what we can think of as different levels of punishment or different lengths of time of conscious punishment. There's certainly all, all there's room for that in my view. But I want to emphasize again that the, the, the point of the Bible throughout is not focusing on the conscious pain that one feels in the process, though there's room for that. But the point the Bible makes is that the person who cuts oneself off entirely from God in this life will be cut off entirely from God in the age to come. And since we depend on God for our very existence, to be cut off from God means we're going to die, perish, and be destroyed. I understand. So what you're saying is that the primary issue, the primary matter at hand is the cutting off from God and the final death, whereas these ancillary issues have to do with uh, duration and intensity of punishment and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Now, when you originally published your book, how was it received? Did, did you find that traditionalists were giving maybe some serious consideration to your work and maybe reconsidering their own view? Or, or did they see you as a sort of threat and try to stamp out any influence you might have? What, what, what were the kinds of reactions you received? All of the above. <laughs> it, it, it depends on the people, of course. Uh, and it, it, interestingly, I, I've, I've, I've learned over the last 67 years, Chris, that, uh, that the reactions that I get to this subject, to this book, are not really so much reactions uh, to this book as much as they are reactions out of the heart of the person who makes the reaction. To, and, and the same reaction would be coming, be forthcoming no matter what the subject was, if it was something they didn't already agree with, because people react consistently to new things. For some people, when they hear this uh, this uh, explanation, 
as they would with any other subject about which they hear a new explanation. They say, well, that's very interesting. I need to study the Bible about that more carefully and see what I learned for myself. Uh, there are other people who, uh, who, when they hear a new explanation for anything, including this subject, say, no way, Jose, uh, you can't <laughs> possibly have that. And uh, out of here with you, uh, I'm tempted to mention the Twitter thing about Rob Bell, but I will not do that right now. Anyway, uh you know, the, the reaction depends on the person, and, sure. uh, and there have been all kinds of reactions. Well, you know, I, this is sort of a, a little bit of a tangent, but um, uh, several episodes ago I had somebody on my show named Joel Green. Uh, he's a um, dean at uh, Fuller Seminary, and, and I, we were talking about physicalism, which we're going to get to in a little bit. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, was did he feel like reactions to his view were oftentimes uh, less than godly? Let's just put it that way. And he, and he said yes, and he said that one of his real desires in speaking about the topic of physicalism is not so much to try to convince people that he's right, but just to sort of re- get people to realize that there's room for discussion on this issue. Do you, do you, do you share a similar sort of uh, motivation? Do, do you also likewise just want to see people open up the door to conversation on this issue rather than simply dogmatically reject it? Absolutely. That would be a great step forward for for many Christian people. And I'm glad to say that there are Christian leaders who who have a a very good attitude about it in this regard. For example, Michael Horton, who is an author and teacher and and the head of the, what's it called, White Horse... uh, White Horse Modern Inn. Reformation, White Horse Inn, Modern Reformation magazine, and so forth. He he interviewed me in the, in his magazine a few years ago for four, five, six pages, and uh, and was very gracious and cordial. He had an introduction in his editorial about my piece, in which he made it very clear that he disagreed with me and thought I was mistaken. But at the same time, he he credited me with basing what I said on the scripture as best I understood it, and and, and for, to, to my mind, he was being as brotherly and uh, receptive as a person could be to the individual, even though he thought I was mistaken. Another good example of this in this area is J.I. Packer, who, while I think is mistaken uh, on this point, nonetheless is uh, is a very gracious gentleman and Christian brother uh, in his attitude toward people, and he's made the statement that this is this is not an issue about which Christians should divide. On the Arminian side, Roger Olson at Truett Seminary at Baylor University in Waco, in his book Mosaic of Christian Belief, specifically includes the conditional immortality in my book, in my name, as an example of part of what the mosaic includes within the realms of orthodoxy. There are other people who have been very... Uh, very uh, uh, ungracious and, and extreme and said some nasty things, and I mentioned their names in the book, but I think I'll not name them here unless you ask me to. No, that's quite all right. Uh, I, I, I am curious, though, including these people that you've mentioned, uh, but bro- more broadly speaking, do you find that most traditionalists, even if they do firmly disagree with you like you mentioned these people do, do you think that they would generally say that annihilationism, at least as you presented it, ought to be considered orthodox or, or at the very least not heretical? I think that most Christian people, uh, without the prodding of some agitating, uh, crusading type uh, preacher or, de- or editor or professor or debater or whatever, will, will, will come to that sort of conclusion that you're stating. I think most Christian people, because of the influence of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, because of their uh, common sense understanding of what's godly, uh, when they when they come upon something like this that's a little different, unless somebody's pushing them to be extreme, will tend to come out about right in the way they look at it. 
Yeah. Uh, one person I'll mention that I really respect is uh, Greg Kokel. Um, he's the host of a show called Stand to Reason. And I once heard him talk about, you know, this was during the whole Rob Bell fiasco. And he mentioned that there were a, a couple of different views or, or a few different views that deny a eternal conscious view of, uh, of uh, eternal conscious torment view of hell. And he said that there were uh, hetero or um, uh, heretical views like universalism, which which he would characterize as Rob Bell's view, which as, as would I. But then he specifically mentioned your your form of annihilationism as being one that he would consider heterodox, but not heretical. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so I respected that he at least acknowledged that it wasn't something that places somebody outside the body of Christ. You know what I mean? Well, I, I'll, I'll mention this too in passing. Last Sunday, we happened to be visiting our son and his family in Dallas and went to church with them at the Baptist church that they're members of. The pastor happened to be preaching on hell <laughs> that Sunday morning, and he knew that I was there. He had been given a copy of my book during the week previous, and we spoke to each other before the sermon and shook hands, and God blessed each other. And in his sermon, he mentioned my view, and they did not name me, but he mentioned my view and said that he did not agree with it. He thought it was mistaken, but he also added that uh, there were many fine scholars who he respected and loved, who disagreed with that, <laughs> with yeah. him on that, and so forth. So it's like any other subject that Christians differ about within the realm of, of, of those who are all confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, that we have to make room for people to understand some things differently, even if we think they're mistaken. Yeah, as long as, and I think you and I would agree with this, as long as they don't violate what few uh, essentials there are to the Christian faith. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, so now it's been 30 years uh, after you, almost 30 years anyway, after you first published the book. And you very recently published a third edition. Um, <laughs> again, mentioning Rob Bell, it hasn't been very long since his book came out. So it's kind of interesting, the timing there. But but I'm curious, what led to your, what led to you to publish this third edition? What, what's new in it that wasn't in the previous editions? Well, when you mentioned Rob Bell there, I, I kind of want to add this little thought. Uh, just to put things in perspective, when the first edition of The Fire That Consumes came out, Rob Bell was uh, 11 years old, <laughs> and, uh, and he, he, his book came out a month or two before my third edition did. However, my third edition had been in the preparation for the year previous, and so uh, it's, this was no reaction to Rob Bell, in other words. Sure. Uh, what led me to the third edition, I would say this probably is the answer. I, I have a nephew... Uh, uh, Aaron Fudge in uh, California, who uh, a couple of three years ago got an MDiv degree in, uh, at Multnomah in uh, Oregon, and he, Aaron and I were talking sometime after that, and he said a number of his f colleagues and friends and buddies had read the fire that consumes and, and were appreciative of it, but they wished it would be updated because for you know for a guy who's 21 years old or 24 or something. This book came out 29 years ago. <laughs> it's out of date before he was born, uh, almost. So, mm. so they said they wish it could be updated. And I, I thought, well, that's a good idea. It needs to happen. And as it happened, uh, about a year ago, uh, now, now more like a year and a half, I, I was working on another book that I have not yet gotten back to. And, uh, and I just, I, I felt like my feet were in concrete, uh, trying to write that other book. I just could not get any traction. And then one day it occurred to me that I think maybe I'm supposed to update this fire that <laughs> consumes first. And so I, I just stopped the other book 
and turned attention to this. Everything fell in place from getting a publisher immediately right on, and uh, and it just happened so beautifully and smoothly. I'm totally confident in my own heart now that God's hand was in it, and, and he was indeed pushing me to get that done first. And now one of these days I hope to get back to the other book. Sure. Well, when you when you say that you've updated it, though, can you, I mean, can you elaborate just a little bit? What do you mean that you've updated it? Well, two or three, two or three specific examples. For, for, for scholarship has has changed. There are new new materials. For example, this was not a real big deal in the book, but I'll just give it as an example. Mm-hmm. When I when I wrote the first edition, which came out in 1982, there were eight Dead Sea Scrolls in English available to the common public. At that time, eight Dead Sea Scrolls in English available to the common public. Uh, now there are 800. <laughs> the, the, the study edition that, that a person would use now, which has Hebrew on one page and English on the other, uh, that has all these 800 scrolls and fragments, uh, it was, was is, is edited by a Belgian scholar. And as it happens, uh, I, I had gotten his two-volume work. It's like 1,350 pages. Read all of the English versions all the way through both volumes, and it, it ended up that the scrolls that now with 800 don't say anything different from what I said they said when they had eight, <laughs> uh, which was nice. But what was especially nice was that one day I was in the Lanier Theological Library, which is uh, close, not too far from where I live and where I'm associated, uh, and and uh, lo and behold, this scholar from Belgium was in the library there uh, putting up his own books in a special collection that the library was establishing in his honor. So I got to talk to him about the Dead Sea Scrolls face-to-face, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the main thing that's updated, lot, lots of footnotes. Uh, I don't even know how many, 1,500, 2,000, something like that maybe. Wow. Uh, uh, a lot of those footnotes are updated. I have newer newer materials uh, newer authors uh, saying the same kind of things that were saying before, or in some cases something that's even a little newer than that. Uh, but but the main difference, I believe, that anybody would notice, and I think this really adds value to the book, uh, since 1982 when the first edition of The Fire That Consumes came out, there have been at least a dozen books published by traditionalist authors, in all 17 of them, uh, in opposition to my view or in response to my view. And, and and so in this new book, I actually interact with those 17 authors throughout the book and over and over again through the book. I'll say, I have a little section called Interaction. Right. And I'll, I'll say what the, what those people say about whatever we're talking about and then I'll give my response. So this, this gives the reader a much more full picture of the conversation. Uh, both as to what I said, as to how they responded, and how I respond to their response. Yeah, I haven't finished the book yet, but th- that interaction section at the end of those chapters is really enjoyable. Um, I definitely recommend that to my readers. Um, so, well, so it would be impossible to go through all the material covered in your book in the short time we have today, but I would like to address some of the important points, or at least the ones I think are important, and give you an opportunity to challenge us, those of us who might have at one time or another been traditionalists. Now, in the first chapter of your book, you discuss what you call the rethinking of hell, and you mention some books whose titles tell the story, as you put it. What is that story, and, and what do some traditionalists blame for this rethinking of hell? And in contrast, what do you think has caused the church to rethink it? Well, the story that I'm referring to, which is told in the book titles, are such titles as these. Robert Peterson's book, Hell on Trial, 
a book uh, edited by Peterson and another fellow with a number of authors called uh, Hell Under Fire. Uh, and another author has a book called Whatever Happened to Hell. Uh, there have been uh, magazine articles, uh, Christianity Today's, uh, just putting it straight out, is eternal torment or, or, or annihilation and so forth. So the, the story is that, that Christian scholars uh, around the world, <coughs> evangelicals, are rethinking this subject. And we'll say more about why in a little bit later, I think. But uh, that's happening. It, the, the, this rethinking is is not understood by hardline traditionalists. Uh, in the, the 17 traditionalist authors who I quote and cite and, and interact with throughout the book, blame it on all kinds of things that are not the reason, such as theological compromise, a desire for a kinder, gentler theology, pluralism, you know, the leftovers from the Enlightenment, human reason, those are not the reasons people are rethinking. The reason people are rethinking is because they're suddenly realizing that, uh, that what, they're, what they've been hearing and saying in years past is not anything they can turn to a passage of Scripture and read. Mm. And, on the, and they're, on the other hand, they're realizing that when they do read what the Bible actually says, most often it talks about the wicked dying or perishing or being destroyed, and yet they feel bound by their old understanding to explain that away and say, well, it doesn't really mean what it sounds like. It means just the opposite of what it sounds like. <laughs> it means they will never die, they will never perish, they will never be destroyed. And so that's, that's what's really going on as I see it. I see. So, so you're in your case personally. It's not that you're trying to find a um, a more palatable version of judgment or something like that. No, I, I, that never bothered me. I've I've always been a a little bit of an oddball and a little bit cantankerous, and so I never cared what anybody thought about me anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not trying to please anybody except God. That's good. Well, so now in the second chapter of the book, you talk about the quote-unquote Protestant principle. Um, I remember that when I interviewed last time, a couple of weeks ago, we talked briefly about sola scriptura, and I think you hinted then at your belief that when it comes to this question of hell, at least, traditionalists aren't as sola, scripture, uh, sola scriptura as perhaps they profess to be. Tell us about that and the, what you call, obstacle of petrification, which you believe that we should endeavor to overcome. You know, the obstacle of petrification is a is a subtitle that I have in the in the chapter two, and it has to do with a, a quotation from Alistair McGrath at Oxford, who makes this I think very wonderful statement. He says it seems to be a general feature of the history of Christian thought that a period of genuine creativity is immediately followed by a petrification and scholasticism as the insights of a pioneering thinker or group of thinkers are embodied in formulae or confessions. Hmm. And then he has this sentence, Orthodoxy merely guarded the ashes of the Reformation rather than tending its flame. And, and what he's saying is that when there's, a, when there's a period of great theological inquiry and discovery, such as in the Reformation, in almost every case that's followed by people who immediately start writing creeds and, and confessions of faith to preserve everything, and so they go into the theological pickling business and uh, put everything up in jars so it never gets tampered with, but they don't keep working and doing the job that the other guys were doing in the first place. And that's too bad. It, we, we should we should be the church reformed and always reforming. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and and do you find that do you find that it's often the case that traditionalists uh, uphold the traditional view of hell because it's the tradition rather than because scripture upholds it? Well, let me read you the words of one theologian uh, who's speaking in general, but uh, I think it's indicative of an attitude. 
uh, this is a quotation from a very well-known theologian and uh, author of a theology book. I have had but one object in my professional career and as a writer, and that is to state and to vindicate the doctrines of the Reformed Church. I've never advanced a new idea and have never aimed to improve on the doctrines of our fathers, having become satisfied that the system of doctrines taught in the creeds and confessions of the Reformed churches is taught in the Bible. I have endeavored to sustain it and am willing to believe even when I cannot understand. And I, I, I follow, follow that quotation with this statement. What we might ask is this. Was this not the exact sentiment as expressed by medieval Roman Catholicism that was a specific cause of the Protestant Reformation? The author of the quotation above uh, says reform, but there's no place for others to point the finger. The same attitude is found across the spectrum, although rarely expressed with such pride and candor. Wherever this attitude is found, in reform circles or Arminian, Baptist people or stone camel restoration, Adventism or Lutheranism, Charismatics or Dispensationalists, Fundamentalists or Emergence, wherever it's found, all professions of commitment to a high view of Scripture become suspect, as hollow and hypocritical, as insubstantial as a game of charades played at a birthday party of 12-year-olds. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it really says something about um, I think that people can pick up on whether or not somebody is truly being sola scriptura in the way that they argue about hell. And, and um, you know, I've found that th- this is why I'm on the fence. You know, I'll be honest with you, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this in a little bit. Uh, the reason I'm on the fence when it comes to this issue is not so much that I've found the annihilationist case or, or the conditional immort- immortality case compelling. I don't think I've even heard that case yet. But what I have found is I've researched the typical objections to it as that we're going to talk about in a little bit. I found them so week and, and 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 so it was it was this this uh um, marriage to tradition rather than to scripture that has moved somebody like me to the fence, you know, and so anyway, I guess I'm just saying I think people could pick up on that. Like you said, it's very hollow, very uh, transparent. Well, what what happens, and, and you'll see this as, as you go through my book, and also uh, we'll probably come up on it more in detail talking about it later, but but so so often throughout the scriptures as I take, take up these subjects and interact with the traditionist authors, so often the traditionist authors will take a passage and say, Jesus says, for example, that at the end of the world, the angels will gather the, the people and separate the good from the bad, and, and the others will be burned up in the fire. And the traditionist author will say, this doesn't really mean they will be burned up, because this, this other passage says something over here, da-da-da-da-da. And, and you go to the other passage, and it'll say they're burned up. And then he'll say, well, th- this, th- this doesn't really mean burned up, <laughs> although it would, be, it would mean that if it were not for this passage in Revelation. And, and so I mean, that, that's just playing games with Scripture. Uh, and, and, and the most common, I, I really think, Chris, that the two, two of the strongest lines of persuasive material in this in this new fire that consumes are going to be not specifically my arguments, but number one, the fact that the traditionalist authors regularly and consistently and persistently and, and repeatedly ignore completely dozens of passages of scripture throughout the Bible which have something to say on the subject. And right. I've got a I've got a jillion footnotes which which will say the seventeen traditionalist authors we are following do not mention this scripture. And that just occurs over and over and over. The other thing that's going to be impressive to people who read this book, which you've already noted yourself and, and that is to read the arguments that the traditionalist authors make, which in so many cases end up being something you say, you hit yourself in the forehead and say, duh, what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely gotten that impression. 
Well, so let's, let's return briefly to this issue of conditionalism because in chapter three of your book, um, you talk about, uh, the nature of the soul. Um, and you've already kind of contrasted what conditionalism is with, with the more traditional view. But what I find interesting in this chapter is that you make a case that the traditional view of hell, unbeknownst to many traditionalists, actually result, resulted from rather than resulted in, uh, an immortality view of the human soul. Is that right? Yes, if I understand your uh, very uh, educated sentence there. Sorry, I, 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 that's all right. I, th- I think that uh, I think that's right. Now, let, me, let me put it like this: what's what's happened is for uh, seventeen hundred years now, eighteen hundred years perhaps, the the great mass of the Christian Church in the West has 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 believed and taught that the wicked will be alive forever in hell, uh, basically because uh, they had immortal souls. They could not die, perish, or be destroyed. Uh, that that came to be the teaching in the early years of the second century, third century, and it was pretty much stamped with Augustine's authority in the next century, and then it became the traditional Catholic teaching. In the Reformation of uh, stories that we won't get into right now, it became Protestant teaching, primarily through John Calvin and uh, and, and Heinrich Bullinger, who wrote the Second Helvetic Confession. So for all these centuries, people have assumed that that's what the Bible teaches without even knowing where the people originally got that idea necessarily. Then then along comes someone like myself saying, well, look, look here, the Bible really uses this other kind of language. Why do we think it means that? And, 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 and the interesting thing is that it's in about 1950, 1950s or 1960, there was a, a little book of about 80 pages by a Swiss-French scholar named Oscar Kuhlmann called Immortality of the Soul or Resurrection of the Dead. And uh, and this was a, a major impact book. It was not big, but it had an enormous impact on the theological world. And, and basically he pointed out that the Bible, unlike Greek philosophy of Plato and Socrates and others, does not teach the immortality of the soul. That immortality is God's gift. That our hope is in resurrection through the power of God. We don't look for our hope in some immortal soul. But that was the pagan Greek idea taught by Socrates and later by Plato. Hmm. Well, what happened in the early years of the church, and I know we're coming to this later, so I won't say much about it right now, but based on that immortality of the soul idea coming into the church through some converted Greek philosophers, the, the scripture passages that teach clearly about the end of the wicked began to be reinterpreted to mean eternal conscious torment mm. because those people said the soul cannot be destroyed. Well, nowadays, nowadays no evangelical uh, Christian or theologian at least probably believes that the soul is inherently immortal or that it cannot be destroyed or any of that stuff. So sometimes when I've pointed this out, that that was the origin of this, uh, someone will respond and say, oh, no, that's not my belief. That's not why I believe it. I believe it because the Bible teaches it. And and, and I will say, wait just a minute, brother. You're not, you're not seeing what's happening here. I'm not saying you, but you base it consciously on that idea. I'm saying that you, you base it subconsciously on the fact that that's what the church has always taught in your, in your view, but you're not seeing the fact that way back in the early years of the church, this is why it came to be taught in the first place. Right. And so the, 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 the one thing, if you went around to evangelical seminaries and said, how many here believe the immortality of the soul is a biblical teaching? Uh, no, nobody probably is going to raise their hand or very, very few. But if you say, 
How many of you have ever thought how that might impact our doctrine of hell? Almost nobody's going to raise their hand either. Mm. And so I, th- I think that's the main thing my book does is, is point out the connection and say, hey, guys, we don't believe in mortality of soul anymore. That was not a Bible doctrine. We know it wasn't. But that really is where this other idea came from. Now that we know that's not the, a good basis for that other doctrine, let's look at the Bible again and see what it really says and read it without having that thing hanging around our neck. Yeah, that's very good. Now, but I do want to follow up just a little more on this issue of the soul, because as, as you might know, I've, I've had a couple of notable guests on to discuss physicalism or monism, however it is that you might want to describe it. Uh, and some of my listeners and I have some concerns about its orthodoxy. Some of my listeners are a little more concerned than I am, but, but I do have a little bit of concerns, which maybe I'll express to you another time. But anyway... Annihilationists such as yourself would say that everything that constitutes a human person is utterly destroyed by this fire that consumes. I think that's fair to say. But the question I have for you is, regardless of your position when it comes to the debate between monism and dualism, because to be honest, I don't know where you stand, and it's okay if I don't want to know at this point, but is it possible to be a dualist affirming the existence of an immaterial human soul in the so-called intermediate state, but at the same time also being an annihilationist? Absolutely, yes, it's possible. In fact, that was one of the uh, <clears throat> one of the first things I noticed when I was doing research into the t- history of, uh, of annihilationism. In in the in the 1900s, I'm sorry, in the 1800s, there were two major books uh, from uh, from England about uh, this subject by tr- by conditionalists. One of them was by a, a man who was, uh, in modern terms, was a, a believed in monism. The other was a, a believed in the dualistic view. And, and they both said the same thing about hell. And I, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. If, if you can hold either one of those views and have the same belief about the end of the wicked, I don't want to introduce an unnecessary uh, dividing point in here by getting into that other subject that much. So although I have some comments that maybe point a certain direction, I don't really see that as a major point or issue because you can believe either way about the nature of man and still believe that in the end the soul is destroyed as well as the body, which is what Jesus says clearly God is able to do. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good because, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm a little concerned about physicalism at this point. Um, and, uh, it'd be nice for my, I'd like my listeners to know that they shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't not consider annihilation because they assume that it requires monism. So that's good. Well, what what I do sometimes, sometimes I say to people when they push me where I stand on that, I say Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm one way, Tuesday, (laughs) Thursday, Saturday, I'm the other. (laughs) What about Sunday? That's like the clock that stopped, but it's right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I, I got you. Well, now, so at this point in the book, you go on for something like 20 chapters to, to basically look at virtually every biblical, apocryphal, pseudepigraphal text concerning the topic of judgment and hell. It, it's, it's incredibly comprehensive, and, and I, you know, I hope my listeners will check it out. And, and we're going to come back to some of that in a moment. But I want to skip ahead to chapters 24 and 25, where you start to write about the writings of some of the earliest church fathers and apologists. What did they have to say about hell, and, and do we find in them any early support for annihilationism? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, you mentioned two or three groups here, the earliest church fathers and the apologists. Let me break those down to separate them just a moment. Sure. The earliest, er, earliest church fathers are the, are the writers that are referred to as the patristic writers, which, of course, just means the fathers. But these are basically the people who were 
who were disciples of the apostles of the Lord, or, or disciples at least of men who had been taught by the apostles of the Lord. And they include Ignatius of Antioch. They include uh, uh, a person named Barnabas, who we don't know exactly who he was, uh, the author of the Didache and so forth, uh, Clement of Rome, and this first first generation of post-apostolic uh, church writers. That first generation, interestingly enough, uh, their writings are claimed by both sides in this controversy. And the reason is they let, they pretty much restrict themselves to biblical terminology. And since we're both sides to give a different meaning to biblical terminology, <laughs> we each claim that these guys are agreeing with us <laughs> because right. they, they say what the Bible says and stop at that, which, which to me is very good because they agree with me. <laughs> but, but, but the other side says the same thing, of course. Right. The, 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 then the next, next people that you mentioned are the apologists. This brings us down to people like Tatian, who, who died about 180, uh, Athenagoras, who died about 190, Tertullian, who died about 224. Uh, th- these are converted Greek philosophers who bring with them into the church the Greek doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And I'm not just making this up. Some of the traditionalist writers have talked about it as though this was just some invention of mine. But I give the citations. I quote what they say. Tertullian is a chief example. Tertullian, uh, his, his longest work, theological work, was a book called The Anima of the Soul. And he, he, he says in there that he has a sister in his church who saw a soul one time, and he described the color and the texture and all that. Uh, he goes on to say that, 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 that Jesus came to save the body but not the soul because the soul didn't need saving since it was immortal already in its own nature. Mm. Uh, he, he says that... Uh, that when Jesus warns, fear God who can destroy soul and body in hell, we should not think that God will destroy the soul because we know souls are immortal and cannot be destroyed. And this sort of thing. It's just nonsense uh, by modern way of reading. You know, we, we, we know better than that stuff now. But, but that's how it came in. And, and once, once you have the idea... In the, in the church of an immortal soul, that everybody has an immortal soul. I grew up hearing that sometimes from revival preachers that everybody has an immortal soul. You'll spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And I had no idea in those days that that was a quotation out of the Plato's Phaedo, which is about the death of Socrates and, and not out of the Bible. Uh, but, but that, that's what happened. And they begin to say, well, you have a soul. And so even as late as, uh, as the 1800s, Shed, the, the, the theologian and others like him were saying things like, every person must live forever. You cannot help it. There's no way you can possibly die. Well, you know, that's just not biblical at all. So, yeah, I agree with that. But, but I'm curious. So, you said that the church fathers limited themselves primarily to biblical language, and so both sides of this debate tend to use them as, as support for their position. And then the apologists brought into the church Greek philosophy, which presumes the immortality of the soul and therefore uh, results in um, the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. But, but, but is there anybody who is a little bit more explicit and uses extra biblical language to, to make it clear that they did believe in something akin to annihilation? Well, I, I would like to say there are and give you some people who I say think fit that category. But in all honesty, if I read them carefully and read all that they wrote, I have to say that someone like Justin Martyr, who at times talks very much the way I like to hear him sound, <laughs> uh, at other at other times talks the other way. And so it's just they're, they're ambiguous. They really, really are. We, I think, to be honest, we have to just admit that. Okay. 
Now, in chapter 26, then, after discussing the Church Fathers and the Apologists, you go on to discuss the issue of universalism. And you describe it as, <laughs> quote, an albatross wrapped firmly around traditionalism's neck. You go on to insist that traditionalism provides an environment, an incentive, and a theological foundation that are all conducive to universalism. Now, I find this particularly relevant and provocative in light of, as we've continued to talk about, Rob Bell's recent book. Can, can you explain what you mean by that statement? Yes, let, let me say a word, if I may, about the about the three views, just to put, put us in context here. In the history of the church, there are basically three views of hell. There's what I consider the biblical view, which is the fire that consumes. Uh, there's a second view that comes out uh, from Tertullian's uh, teaching, which is the fire that eternally torments. And then there's a third view that comes out from Origin of Alexandria some years later, uh, the fire that purifies. And he, he said that uh, the fire of hell will be a purifying fire which accomplishes a, a constructive purpose and in the end uh, it prepares people with their evil all burned away to spend eternity with God. So it, it's uh, it, that's what the idea of universal salvation uh, comes from that. Uh, you specifically refer to my statement that the that the traditional view provides uh, uh, three words: environment, incentive, and theological foundation that leads to universalism. What I meant by that is this: that uh, if 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 one believes the traditional view that this, that the lost are eternally present, that they're eternally alive, that they're always going to be there alive, then it seems to me that there's going to always be a tendency for people uh, to, to think and to, and to wish and to hope and to look for ways that could be possible to save somehow they finally get saved because our, our heart... Jesus Jesus wept over Jerusalem when they were about to be destroyed. Uh, the Bible says God does not wish for any to perish. God wants people to be saved. And surely we must have a heart like God in that respect. So J.I. Packer has commented his, his desire that he wishes universalism could be true, but it isn't. Uh, but the reason we wish it could is because we would like for people to be saved. Of course we would. And if we believe that the lost are forever alive in hell, there's going to always be that possibility, that hope, that maybe there's some way that could happen. I think that's given the opportunity there that I'm speaking about, the environment rather. The, the motivation or the incentive is there just in this desire, which is probably a holy desire, that people would somehow come to know God, and we would wish that would be the case. And then most interesting to me is this uh, theological foundation. It's, it seems very strange to me, but it's, it's commonly taught by traditionalist authors, and especially uh, Reformed or Calvinist authors, that people in hell suffer for the sins that they commit in hell. That's not anything the Bible ever says. Uh, the Bible never teaches anything about people in hell being punished for sins they commit in hell. Hell is the, is the punishment for sins done in this life. It's a point a man wants to die and after death of judgment, and we don't go back and tamper with the causation to, to, to change the outcome. Uh, but but the, the argument frequently goes like this. The, the, the Gerstner, Packer, uh, Peterson, the whole slew of traditions authors argue this way. They'll say that in hell the wicked are suffering, they're cursing God, they're hating God, and because of their ongoing sinning and cursing and hating God, 
uh, in hell, they must suffer for that too. But what they're suffering today is from what they did before today. And so when they do this new sin today, that requires punishment tomorrow. And they keep doing it tomorrow, and that requires more punishment. So it will have to be eternal conscious punishment because they never get enough punishment to make up for what they keep on doing in hell. Well, first of all, that's just not anywhere in the Bible. I think that's totally wrong that the Scripture doesn't teach that what happens in hell is based on what we do in hell. It's based on what people do now. But in the, my point here is this. If the future of a person in hell can become worse because of what they do in hell, then it seems to me only reasonable to think that the future of a person in hell hmm. could also become better because of what they do in hell, which means if they are remorseful, if they're repenting, if they're sorry for their sin, etc., etc., that should give some opportunity for redemption. And there you have universalist possibility popping up again. So I think that I think the traditional people themselves have provided a line of thought that is a theological foundation for saying that there's a possibility of redemption. Now I know that those who are reformed or Calvinists will immediately come back and say, "Well, there's no way that could happen because they're totally depraved and and they don't have the ability to repent anyway," and so on, so on, so on. I will only say this: that those who say that themselves also usually say that those in hell will, in fact, feel remorse. They will be praising God for His just judgments. They'll be acknowledging that they're getting what they deserve. And those are things as well, it seems to me, that their own uh, theological system would not allow to happen but for God's intervening grace. And that's a good point. I, I have seen, I am myself a Reformed, as we talked about last time, and, and uh, b- but I have seen some Reformed uh, theologians do exactly that. They'll in one, in one sense say that, you know, they'll, they'll, um, they won't repent in hell, and at the same time say they'll acknowledge the justice that, you know, and, and uh, that seems really inconsistent to me. Fortunately, I don't think that they will uh, acknowledge God's justice. So anyway, but well, yeah, it, I'm glad that you mentioned this this argument about um, continuing to sin in hell and being punished for it because as you probably know, I was going to ask you about in the second half of, of the episode. So um, uh, we'll be able to skip that question then. <laughs> um, now, there is one more question I have for you in this first half of the interview. Um, in, in several chapters which follow after the, the chapter we just talked about on universalism. You talk about church history from August to Augustine to Calvin to John Locke and beyond. I, I'm going to leave that to my listeners to check out because what I really want to do in this, in, toward the end of this first half of the interview is, is give you an opportunity to give us what you think is a compelling positive case for annihilation before I challenge you with the common objections that I've come across. And I'm going to be upfront with you. I'm not persuaded by arguments that I've seen made by at least some annihilationists, uh, arguments that are based on the the professed unfairness of eternal conscious torment or how it's supposedly inconsistent with God's nature. I mean, you're, of course, welcome to touch on those matters if you think those are compelling. But what I'm interested in, what I suspect many of my listeners are interested in, is your biblical case for annihilation, something based on those 20 or so chapters I mentioned a moment ago in which you examine what the Bible has to say. So so in light of our mutual desire to adhere to Sola Scriptura, can you, can you present such a case for us? Sure, I'll just have to summarize, of course, here in this conversation that we're having. Uh, sure. Uh, but and, and I don't want to spend an undue amount of time, but I appreciate the opportunity to, to go to the Scripture itself and, and make this comment. Uh, let me say this, that in the first place, the Old Testament, uh, let me start this sentence over. The traditionalist case has frequently been laid out something as follows. 
that's that commonly said by traditionists that the Old Testament says little or nothing about hell. That between the Testaments, the doctrine of eternal torment came to be the accepted Jewish view and was so in the first century when Jesus comes along. And that Jesus, therefore, must be read in all that he says, assuming that he believed in eternal conscious torment because that was the Jewish view, which traditionists say he did not bother to refute. And on that same basis, then, they say all these expressions that the New Testament uses for the uh, end of the wicked mean eternal conscious torment, and that the same is true in the writings of Paul and the other New Testament people after him. So that's kind of the way the tradition's case is, is traditionally laid out. Hmm. The interest, interesting thing is, it's, it's true to say that that the Old Testament does not talk about hell. If by that one means that if you look in the concordance, Oh, the concordances wouldn't work here because some of the translations have the word hell for other words. But the, the, the Old Testament does not have anything to say, and, and traditionalist authors usually agree with me about this, does not have anything to say about the traditionalist hell. There's not anywhere in the Old Testament that clearly says anything about people suffering unending conscious torment in hell. That's that's agreed to by both sides. What, what happens, though, is the traditionalist authors go to the Old Testament looking for that teaching and not finding it, come back and say, we've searched through the Old Testament, there's nothing of value in the Old Testament on our subject. The problem is they're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, is there anything in the Old Testament about unending conscious torment, what they should ask is, what does the Old Testament say about the end of the wicked? Hmm. And if they ask that question, they find a ton of materials, and they're going to need a whole train to bring all the stuff home with them that they, <laughs> that they discover. So, for example, Jesus himself divides the Old Testament into three parts in Luke 24 when he teaches his disciples about himself after his resurrection. It says he teaches them from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Well, as you know, the Jews divided their, their scriptures into the, uh, the Torah, the books of Moses, the uh, Nevi'im or the prophets, and the uh, Ketuvim or the writings. And the writing section began with the Psalms. So Jesus is really speaking about the three commonly accepted Jewish terms for dividing the Old Testament into three parts. The, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are the writings. Uh, if, we, if we look at those three sections of Old Testament Scripture individually, we find three different ways that it primarily talks to us about the end of the wicked. If we look at the, uh, taking them a little bit out of order, if we look at the writings or the psalm section first, we find uh, n- numerous psalms. I deal with about a dozen in my book, but there are others besides that. Numerous psalms in which it will say things like this, that uh, the, the, the way of the wicked will perish. You will look for the wicked and they will be no more. Uh, they will be gone. They will be not found. Their, their name will be cut off. They will be nowhere to be seen. Uh, and, and so forth. And, and so it, it frequently says to us that the principles of divine justice are such that the, the righteous will endure forever with God's blessing, but the wicked will be cut off and be no more. Well, now somebody says that's, maybe that's talking about in this life. Well, maybe it is. 
But the problem is then, as the Psalms acknowledge, sometimes that doesn't happen in this life. So what do we say then? Do we say, well, this is true when it's true, Mm. but it isn't true when it isn't? Or do we say, but it must be some other way it's true even when we don't see it now? And I think we have to say the second part. Uh, This will be the truth of the matter before the story is ended. And that will may happen in some cases in the world to come and not now. But in the end, the wicked will be no more. That's what it says. And I think that we can say that God is telling us that intentionally for us to understand it. then, for example, what will happen to the wicked, we might ask. And if we look through the poetic materials again, and the Psalms and the, and the writings, we find this, these kinds of expressions. The wicked will be like, and there, there are 50 different metaphors at least, maybe 70 different metaphors and similes and figures of speech that are used. The wicked will be like a, a dream from which one awakens. The wicked will be like a slug that that's, melts with salt put on it. Uh, the wicked will be like smoke that vanishes. The wicked will be like dew on the grass that disappears in the morning sun. The wicked will be like straw that burns up. The wicked will be like a, a, a tinder that is burned. The, the wicked will be, oh, no, 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 no. Every one of those figures has something in common. Every one of them is a picture of something that is totally destroyed, totally gone, if you please, annihilated. And I'm not getting into some super scientific technical use of the term <laughs> annihilation here. But just in the common sense uses of that word, they're gone. That's what, How could you say that any more plainly? But that's what we see all through the Old Testament. That The problem is traditionalists have read that, those things and they just say, well, just zip right over it. This is not saying anything on our subject. And they didn't notice that it really was. Well, that, that's what we find in the writings. Quickly, the other two sections. It, when, when we look at the uh, at the uh, books of Moses, we see not only principles of divine justice, but here we see prototypes of, of, of divine justice. Two great examples stand out. The, the flood in Genesis uh, 6, 7, 8, or 9 area, in that area, uh, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, a little later in Genesis. Both of these passages are absolutely clear and unequivocal as to what happened. The people who were involved in the flood, the people who were involved in Sodom and Gomorrah, are gone, they're dead, they're wiped out from the face of the earth, they're never seen again in this life. Uh, There's no question what it meant when it said God destroyed Sodom. Nobody says, well, maybe it's destroyed, just meant ruin or slightly messed up his purpose. <laughs> like that. Uh, when the people perished in the flood, nobody says, well, perish has some metaphorical meaning. It doesn't really mean what we think when we say the word perish. Perish meant perish. Die meant die. Destroy meant destroy. The interesting thing is when we come to Second Peter chapter 2 and Second Peter chapter 3 and Jude verses 6 and 7, we find Peter and Jude both saying, that the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah are both examples of what will happen to the ungodly at the end of the world. Peter says, just as the world that once existed was destroyed by water, so God is saving for the destruction of wicked men by fire. And the same word destroyed is used in both cases. Jude is set forth as an example of eternal fire. So Jude, uh, Sodom is, I mean, Jude says that about Sodom. Sodom is an example of eternal fire. So Sodom is not only a picture of what will happen to the ungodly, which is what the text specifically says, but Sodom is even the example of the ungodly, Peter says, by burning them to ashes. 
Uh, and so these these examples from these prototypes within earthly history show us clearly what the words mean in, that are used of the end of the world, destruction of the wicked. That, that's an important consideration. And then third and finally, the prophetic books. And of course, there's some overlap here. Some of the Psalms are prophetic as well, and then some of the things in the books of Moses. But just speaking broadly, the prophetic section of Scripture in the Old Testament uh, deals with predictions of messianic judgment and eschatological end of the world judgment. And there we have such passages as as, uh, as Isaiah chapter 11 that speaks of him slaying the wicked with the sword of his mouth, or Isaiah 66 to 24, the most familiar wording in the whole Bible on this subject, which says of the saved, they shall go forth, speaking of the new Jerusalem, they shall go forth and look on the corpses of those whom the Lord has slain, where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. He pictures people going out of the city and looking on the corpses of people whom God has slain. And these dead bodies lying there unburied, which are shameful and disgraceful, are being eaten by maggots and consumed by smoldering fire until there's nothing left. That's the background for the language fire. That's the background for the language the worm that dies not and fire that's not quenched. That's the that's the language that Jesus quotes and it applies to hell. But so many times people don't even look at the Isaiah passage. When they read that, they just take off and say, well, it means this, that, and the other. But I deal with a dozen passages like that, direct prophetic statements of what will happen to the end of the wicked when Jesus comes. And every one of them pictures death, destruction, annihilation, if you please, extinction, being gone, uh, not being anymore, non-existence. Uh, so it, my, my point, Chris, was not to go to the Bible and try to prove a position. I did not have a position. I was paid to do a research project. And as I did the research project, I found this material, and I said to myself, I've got to write a book and show this to people because I've not seen it myself before. And it's not in the books that traditionalist authors are putting out. They don't even seem to know it's in the Bible. And the sad thing is that while they maybe had a good reason not to know it 30 years ago, the fire that consumes has been out and on the shelves and in, 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 in some of the classes of some of these same authors the last 29 years, and they still don't seem to know these verses are in the Bible. <laughs> and that, that, that's a problem, I think, uh, that needs to be addressed. I think it is too, and, and I'll admit that uh, that was that experience I just had was like drinking from a fire hose. That was pretty. That was a pretty well, let, powerful. Let, let, let me let me tell you, there's another fire hose. Hook to the New Testament that we didn't even get to, but we may cover some of that in these other questions. Yeah, feel free to, to you know, because the, the passages I'm about to bring up are, are challenges to your position, but in answering them, feel free to turn to other New Testament passages sure. that you think actually support your position. Okay. That was the first half of the interview with Edward Fudge on annihilationism, and if you feel like I did, if you feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> take a break uh, and come back and join us for the second half where I'll be challenging him with common objections to his view.